0: Our topic for the last five weeks, this is week number six, has been heaven. And our question is, is it a far-fetched dream, or is it a certain promise? Now, I'm going to skip reading my text to start out with, we'll get to it in just a moment. And uh, I think about heaven a lot, we all do. But I'm wondering... Do we really believe about heaven? Just a week or so ago in our Sunday school time, Paul writing to one of the churches, and he said, for him to die was gain, but to live was Christ. And I I, I have to believe Paul meant that. He meant he was, he was. In fact, he goes on to say it's better off to die and to be with the Lord. But he realized that if it was God's will, if it was needful, he would stay. And he understood that staying would mean some hardships, some trials and tribulations. But Paul was satisfied either way. But he said from the bottom of his heart, "For me to die." It's a game. Rick, I have read the back of the book several times. And I know in my mind we do win. But am I really convinced of that? This past November, we went with Dan to Bowling Green and to celebrate, help Brother Ken Holland celebrate his 80th birthday. And uh Ken kind of gave a testimony that evening. He said, there's one thing I want you to stop doing. Stop praying that God will keep me out of heaven. He said, if I get sick and it looks fatal, let me go. And, you know, he's at that point in his life. He's convinced there is a better world. We have spent some time, and we're not going to read from Revelation tonight. We've done it for several weeks. But John describes heaven as a place, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more tears, no more dying. And we have trouble imagining a place like that, because our world is filled with that kind of stuff. But I'm glad that we have God's Word. In fact, we read several weeks in a row, and we'll probably go back to it maybe next week, not sure it is yet, in the account of Revelation, where God told John these words are faithful and true. Folks, we have the Word of God that says there is a heaven. We began several weeks ago kind of giving a brief overview of of heaven in the Old Testament and heaven in the New Testament. Now, let me clarify, they didn't change, all right? It's always been the same. And we mentioned that there's a particular Hebrew word used almost always for the word heaven in the Old, a particular Greek word in the New Testament for heaven. And it can refer to either the air we breathe, where the stars are at, Where God is. Same is true in the Old as the New Testament. And we know the difference by the context of what we are reading. A couple weeks ago, we went to Luke chapter 16. Let's go back there tonight. And we looked at the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the beggar. Let's read again. We're not going to read the entire story. You know the story. But verses 22 and 23. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. There's been a debate through the years, is this a true story or is it a parable? Well, frankly, it doesn't matter. I believe it's a true story. Well, why? Number one, he names Lazarus. Number two, he names Abraham. But whether it's just a parable or a true story, actual event, uh, doesn't matter. Jesus declares some truths that we need to hide in our hearts. And in our text that we read tonight, we've mentioned this a week or so ago, the rich man died, he was buried, and he ended up in hell and lifted up his eyes. Now remember, that word hell is translated from the word Hades. And it really means the unseen. It's the place of the dead. It does not necessarily mean a place of torment, although that's where the rich man was, and we'll we'll expound on that in just a little while. But we also find that Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham. Now, we have to believe that because Jesus told the story, recounted this event, however it was, that people of the day had a common belief there was a place for the righteous dead and a place for the unrighteous dead. And they must have believed somehow, in some way, or been taught through the years that those who die in Christ, or in the Lord, will go to where Abraham is by is side. And so when we think about Abraham's bosom, and by the way, we'll be talking about paradise, summarizing that. We did that in detail last week, but kind of summarizing that. And they're kind of uh, talking about the same place. Being in a place of bliss and joy. But we have to understand something. The only way to the the final heaven is through the blood of Jesus Christ. He opened the way. And so that hadn't happened yet. That had not happened yet. But it was going to come when the cross came. Of course, now it has. So, because that hadn't happened during this time when Lazarus and a rich man, it hadn't happened in the, in the Old Testament times, they didn't go to heaven when they died because the finished work of Christ had not yet been accomplished. So when we consider the Old Testament saints, or those who died uh, in the New Testament time before Christ was crucified, what happened to them? Where did they go? Well, first of all, in our text tonight, in Luke 16, is clear about this. Jesus describes for us two distinctly different places where man's soul went to after death. One was a place of comfort. In our text, it's referred to as Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort. The other was a place of torment, and we'll speak more about that in a moment, and we refer to that as hell. So you have two places, two distinct places. One is a place for the righteous dead, One is a place for the unrighteous dead. So even in the time of Christ, in the Old Testament times, the dead were were believed to exist in one of several realms. Now we mentioned the word Hades several weeks ago, and that's the literal word for hell here in Luke's Gospel in chapter 16. And it is the same as the concept of Heol in the Old Testament. But Hades evidently has three compartments. Now think about that. And we can identify them by how they are referenced in the Word of God. So remember, Hades is the place of the dead. And evidently from scriptures, and we'll bear that out in a moment, It is made up of three compartments. Now remember, Hades also means the unseen. And uh, sometimes in the Word of God, it's the indefinite reference to the place of the righteous, or it could be the unrighteous. And again, only the context reveals which one that particular word is referring to. But remember, Hades is not... It is not the place of eternal damnation. Hades is a temporary abode. We must remember that. Now, last week we spent quite a bit of time looking at paradise. And, and again, I believe the word paradise, Abraham's bosom, were kind of synonymous. Uh, but paradise, and kind of summarizing it, was really a place of blessing where the righteous go after they have died. And the word paradise, again... Can be also used as a synonym for heaven, but it's not the final eternal heaven. Revelation two verse seven. Look what it says: He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the which is in the midst of the paradise of God. One thing we need to remember. There has always been a separation of believers and unbelievers after death. We do not exist in the same place. It's interesting. The rich man wanted so bad for Abraham to send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water to cool the rich man's tongue in that torment. And look what Abraham said to the rich man. Beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. So using our word paradise, the righteous have always gone to paradise. And the wicked have always gone to hell, a place of torment. So whenever we consider Hades, or we call it hell, the place of torment where the rich man was, or we call it Abraham's bosom where the beggar was, both are temporary holding places until the day that Jesus Christ comes back to judge the world. And that judgment is based on whether or not that individual, those individuals, have trusted him as the Messiah, believed in him. The first resurrection the Bible speaks about is the resurrection of believers, of the saints. And at that time, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Make no mistake about it. But also understand, the judgment seat of Christ is not to determine whether you're saved or lost. Did you hear what I said? That was already determined on Calvary in our faith in Christ. So if you appear... At the judgment seat of Christ, know you are saved. Amen. The purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is to receive the reward we've earned in our service to the Lord. That is the judgment seat of Christ. But the Bible also speaks of a second resurrection. And that's the resurrection of unbelievers... And they won't be at the judgment seat of Christ. They're going to stand before the great white throne judgment of God. Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. Again, John is writing. He is sharing what he saw while he was in heaven. Look what he says. And I saw a great white throne. And him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written, In the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So at this great white throne judgment, all unbelievers will stand before God. At that point in history, they will be sent to the eternal destination. The wicked will go into the lake of fire. And the righteous will go to the new heaven and the new earth. Have you read the back of the book? For going to the new heaven the new earth. So that kind of a summary of paradise. Now I mentioned there are at least three realms or compartments of Hades. One is paradise. Another compartment we call, we call torment or hell. Again, let's go back to Luke 16. Look at verse 23. Speaking of the rich man, it says, In hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. How would agree, <clears throat> at this point, the rich man wished with everything he had, he could be, where Lazarus was. But notice, he was in hell, and he was in torment. So this is a different place than Lazarus was. Now now I don't know that Lazarus could see the rich man, but I know the rich man could see him. But this was a place of suffering. Suffering. And certainly, uh, that was similar to the Old Testament concept, except by the time the New Testament came around, uh, evidently, people saw it as a temporary place waiting for the white throne judgment when everyone that's in hell in torments is going to now be dismissed to Gehenna. And we'll talk about more about that in a moment. And so, this place, this compartment in Hades, contains all the living dead from the time of creation. Now don't miss that. And they were there not because they broke the law. They were there because they didn't believe in a promised Messiah. Understand that. And so this place that we refer to hell, the place of torment where the rich man was, this place was a designated place for all mankind since the fall of Adam. And I want to tell you tonight, except for the promised Redeemer, we'd all be there. Amen. He intervened. How am I glad he did? He made a way of escape. Now remember, and, and I realize, you know, they, they had a difficult job going from Hebrew to English and Greek to English, and I understand a little bit about that at least. That it had to be difficult. I've been told of that. I don't know Greek, but sometimes hell is not the best translation because when we think of hell, we think of the lake of fire. Uh, so sometimes it's not the best translation for the word, but most of the time when that word is used, it refers, if you will, to this place of temporary torment. So we have paradise, we have the place of torment, or the place of hell. Now, by the way, I want to say tonight, even this temporary place You don't want to go there. Not to the place of torment. But there's a third compartment in the underworld. And it's referred to as Tartarus. Now you won't find that word in your English version. But it's a transliteration of the Greek word. And it kind of simply means the prison house. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter makes a very strong statement. Here's what he says. For if God spared not the angels that sin, notice the word angels that sin, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Our English Bible says that God cast them down to hell. But it is a different Greek word than the normal word for hell. The Greek word again is a transliterated word Tartarus. What does that mean? Now we know first of all from scriptures, it's a place reserved for the angels that sin. In Greek mythology In ancient Greek mythology, Tartarus was considered a place of horrible, a horrible pit of torment in the afterlife. And in Greek mythology, it was considered lower even than Hades, the place of the dead. So according to the Greeks, Tartarus was inhabited by ferocious monsters and the worst and the worst of the worst of the worst people. Now again, we're not believing in Greek mythology. But how many know God's words inspired? And without a doubt, here in Second Peter, we are told that God had a special place for the angels that sinned. And the Greek word that Peter chose to use under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was the word Tartarus. And by the way, it appears only one time, and we just read it here tonight, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And most of our English translations translate that Greek word Tartarus as hell. Some, I think the I looked at the NLT yesterday, or this, yeah, I guess it was yesterday. But anyway, translates is the lowest hell. So when you think about the word Tartarus, and forget about Greek mythology, I'm not into that. But the word Tartarus can be defined as the deepest abyss of Hades. You have paradise, you have torment or hell, and you have Tartarus. But notice also in Peter's verse that this place was for the angels that sinned. We're talking about demons here. Amen? Now, there's another place that sinning angels are mentioned, and that's in Genesis chapter 6. Look what it says, the first two verses. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, And daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. So we find here in Genesis 6 angels who sinned in a particular way. And God says that these sons of God to control of human women, and control of their offspring. So the debate through the years has been, who are these sons of God? I'm going to carry that up tonight. Amen? Huh? Now you know that's not true, right? But I've come across, I believe, the best explanation. First of all, some would suggest that these sons of God were the godly line of Seth, and the daughters of men were from the offspring of Cain. They were Canaanites. Not Canaanites, but Canaanites. But the problem is, that explanation does not do justice to the terminology used in in Genesis chapter 6, nor does it do justice to the context of it. So, sons of God, who are they? Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them. So here in Job, chapter 1, we have a clear indication that sons of God are angels. They are not from the line of Seth. The terminology and the context of Genesis 6 does not allow that to fit. Now there's another group. And I must confess, I used to kind of lean this direction who believed that the sons of God were angels. I still believe that. But they believed that these angels cohabited with women on earth and therefore produced ungodly children. But there's a conflict here. Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. Now let me give you the context. The Sadducees were trying to uh, debate Jesus to cross him up. And uh, of course, they didn't believe in the resurrection anyway. And they gave him the example: suppose someone, you know, married a wife, and uh, a woman took a, a man for a husband, and and he died, and and so her, his brother married the same woman, and he died, and I think the story goes up to seven husbands. And the Sadducees said, "Okay, whose wife shall she be in the resurrection?" A group of people didn't believe in resurrection, right? Here's Jesus' answer He says, In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So, again, angels don't marry, they don't procreate necessarily. Well, they don't. Now, by the way, Make sure I'm clear on this. I'm trying to be kind. Do you realize what you think about heaven doesn't matter, but what God's Word says matters? Now, I don't know how in the world Pam is going to get along in heaven without me. Come on, think about it. I mean, she thinks she's in heaven now. But here's what I want to say. I don't understand. I don't know how I'm going to get along without her. But whatever God's got planned there is better than it is here. You've got to count on that. But Jesus is very clear. There's no marriage in heaven. It's simply not going to happen. Now, do I understand everything about that? No, I don't. But I still believe he's got this. Okay? So, I think he clarifies something, especially for the Sadducees and us. Don't worry about that. That's not a problem in heaven. We'll be like angels. We'll not marry in heaven so what happened in Genesis chapter 6 there has to be an explanation for it I think the most probable explanation is there were powerful prideful men rulers if you will who were indwelt by fallen angels they were controlled by fallen angels now by the way I think it's in Ezekiel. I didn't didn't look it up again to to refresh my memory, but we know that uh, the Bible speaks about the king of Tyre. And as you read in, in the context of it, he also refers to Satan himself being in the garden of God. And we know the king of Tyre was not in the garden of Eden. So the bottom line was Satan had taken control of the king of Tyre. He was an awful, wicked king. And so the one who had control of him the one who had possessed him, if you will, who directed his life, had been in the Garden of Eden. So we know that happens in the Word of God. So I think the best explanation, those sons of God cannot be the sons of Seth. It doesn't fit the context of terminology. They could not have married themselves with women. That doesn't work either, according to what Jesus said in Matthew 22. So it has to be fallen angels who left their habitations and inhabited the body of the human bodies of these prideful men and warriors who were once mighty men on the earth. Angels that sinned. Go to Jude chapter one, verse six. Jude writes about angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. Notice this. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Now, James doesn't use the word Tartarus here. It's only used in Peter. But there's no doubt he's talking about the same place. He talks about these angels who left their first habitation, their own habitation. God has placed them in everlasting chains, and they are under the darkness. They are under the place of the dead, the deepest abyss of Hades. And because they left their first habitation, God has cast them down into Tartarus. And they are being held in everlasting chains under darkness until a later day of judgment. And I don't know how to explain this. I don't know that I'm able to do this. I believe that there are still demons out in our world. They're not everywhere. They're not under every rock. But they're there. Satan is the king of the demons. He's their leader. I have no doubt about that. I believe that's from scriptures. But I, I look at this tonight and I wonder sometimes, well, Lord, why are they running loose? You put some in Tartarus, some are under chains, everlasting chains, waiting that judgment of the great day. Why not all of them? Kind of interesting, we, in the New Testament, when Christ was on this earth, we saw, we see several occasions where Jesus encountered demons. And how many know they were afraid of you? One preacher said that Christ is the only one who can scare the hell out of hell. And he did. <laughs> and you have to wonder. <laughs> On one occasion they said, Lord, what have you to do with us right now? We know our day's coming. But then in Luke chapter 8, verse 31, look what it says. And they besought him, they begged him, that he would not command them to go out where? Into the deep, into the abyss. Now, I look at that and I think to myself, you know what? I believe that these demons were aware of a place called Tartarus. They were afraid. They were afraid of that place. Don't put us there yet. So Tartarus then, this third compartment, was a specific place assigned to the fallen angels who since the flood, Genesis chapter 6, were kept in chains of darkness. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Again, Peter is writing. He says, By which also he, Christ, went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient. When once the long surfing of God waited when? In the days of Noah. While the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now, make no mistake about it. Jude talks about angels who left their first estate. They left their first habitation, and God has placed them in everlasting chains. Peter is more specific. He talks about when Jesus Christ was in the tomb. During some time that three days, he went down and he preached to those demons, those spirits in the abyss. And Peter gets specific, specific to us here. And he talks about a time when these demons disobeyed God. And he makes reference to the long-suffering of God during the days of Noah, while Noah was building the ark. So who else could Peter be thinking about except the sons of God referenced in Genesis chapter 6? Comparing Scripture with Scripture. So we have paradise, Abraham's bosoms, synonymous the place of the righteous dead. We have hell or torment, the place of the unrighteous dead. And we have a third compartment, referred to as Tartarus, the deepest abyss in Hades, where certain demons are reserved. But notice also and remember, even Jude tells us They're in everlasting chains under darkness until the judgment of the great day. So as I compare the Scripture with Scripture, I find that all three compartments are temporary until Jesus Christ returns. So even Tartarus... This awful place reserved for certain demons. Even that is a temporary place. They are also waiting the time of the final judgment. But write it down, folks. Final judgment is coming. It is coming. Revelation chapter 9, look at verse 11. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon. But in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. Now I realize there's a debate about the tribulation. I take it literal. And sometime during the tribulation, there will be some creatures released out of Tartarus. And this bottom bottomless pit is the abyss. And without a doubt, it is a part of Tartarus. And John tells us in Revelation 9, there's at least one very powerful angel confined there. In the Hebrew, his name is Abaddon. The Greek, it's Apollyon. Isaiah 54, verse 16. God says, Behold, I have created the smith that blows the coals in the fire, and he that bringeth forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the waster to destroy. Understand, the king of the of and pit of the abyss of Tartarus, he is a destroyer. And that's what he does in Revelation 9, the first 11 verses. He's also the angel of death. And during the last half of the great tribulation, this being, this demon, will be released along with a vast horde of demonic spirits to rule over death and bring destruction to the earth. But my friend, they'll be judged. So we're talking about the final judgment. Another word used for hell in the New Testament is the word Gehenna, And Gehenna refers not to a temporary place, but an eternal Place of torment. The word of Gehenna is derived from the phrase the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was a place where the ancient people in the Old Testament times offered sacrifices to their god Molech. And you can read about it in the Old Testament. And this valley of Henan was a place of unquenchable fire. Jesus calls it Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Gehenna, meaning Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. And this valley was a valley where the, some of the ancient Israelites, some of them passed their children through the fire. In other, in other words, they sacrificed their children. These Jews did this to the Canaanite god, Molech. And by the way, God was not pleased. God has never, never condoned child sacrifice. In later years, Gehenna continued to be an unclean place. And it was used for burning trash from the city of Jerusalem. And in the New Testament times, Jesus used the word Gehenna for an illustration of hell. Here is what hell looks like. God so much despised the God of Molech. He explicitly forbade the Jews from having anything to do with Molech. Leviticus 18 verse 21. And thou shall not let any of thy seed, your children, pass through the fire to Molech. Neither shall thou profane the name of thy God. Why? Because I am the Lord. So God even warned them, if you do that, that abominable thing of my sight, God warned them of impending judgment. God said he would send them away if they didn't keep their attention and their worship toward God. Focus on God. It's also interesting, and we're not going to turn there tonight, but in Jeremiah, in another prophet, prophetic warning, God renamed the Valley of Hinnom to the Valley of Slaughter. A place of slaughter. But the problem was, the Israelites didn't listen to God. Evil kings of Judah. Ahaz was one of them. He used the valley of Hinnom for demonic practices. And you can read it in Second Chronicles 28, by the way. So to punish Judah for that awful sin, God brought Babylon against them, and that pagan nation carried out God's judgment against the idolatry and rebellion of the nation of Judah. You know the story. It wasn't until after 70 years of exile... That the Jews were allowed to return back to Israel. I never caught this till a few years ago when Jeremy was in Bible college and they were studying the Old Testament. Jeremy, what, what was one thing after the captivity of the Jews never did again? Did I say it again? They didn't practice idolatry. How many know God has a way of getting his his, uh, lesson through? They did not practice idolatry. But it took 70 years of exile. When they returned from exile, (laughs) using a modern term, the valley of slaughter was repurposed. Heard somebody use that word four or five years for the first time. Not recycle, repurpose, right? So after the return from exile, they repurpose the valley of Hinnom, or the valley of slaughter. And they repurpose it from a place of infanticide to an ever burning rubbish heap. Now remember, the Jews, even God's people, were extremely superstitious. And Josiah, in Second Kings chapter twenty-three, he went and burned trash on that altar. He defiled it. And because they were extremely superstitious, no Jew would ever use that altar again to sacrifice. children so at that point child sacrifice and all other forms of idol worship ceased in Israel so when Jesus spoke about Gehenna he was talking about the valley of slaughter and Gehenna became a place where the corpses of criminals dead animals all manner of refuse were thrown to be burned and destroyed. And so the Gehenna Valley was a place of burning sewage, a place of burning flesh, and a place of burning garbage. How many of you want to live next to that thing? I hope you haven't had your supper yet. Maggots and worms crawled through the waste. And there was always smoke, smelling strong, and the smell was always sickening. Isaiah 30, verse 33. For Tophet is ordained of old, yea, for the king it is prepared. He hath made it deep and large. The pile thereof is fire and much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, doth kindle it. Tophet is another word for the valley of slaughter. So Jesus talks about Gehenna. If you lived in Jerusalem at that time, in that era, you knew what he's talking about. You 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 recognized the stench. You saw the worms there everywhere. It was a place that was utterly filthy. It was utterly disgusting and it was repulsive to your nose as well as to your eyes. And when Jesus Christ tried to describe hell, the final hell the eternal hell, he used Gehenna as the example. And it was such a vivid image. That's why Jesus used it to depict the fires of hell. It would be a place of eternal torment, constant uncleanness, where the flies never see, the fires never stop burning, the worms never stop crawling. Folks, it is an awful, awful place. I'm not going because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He made a way for me. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for your precious word. And your word is very clear, Lord. even though we may debate about the timetable and is it literal or not, the fact of the matter, there always has been and always will be two distinct places. One for the righteous dead and one for the unrighteous dead. Father, I pray for my family tonight, Lord. I have many that are unsaved. And Lord, no matter how moral we may live in this world, If we die without Christ, we are headed to an awful place. Help us, God, to be faithful tonight, Lord. Tell him the good news of Jesus Christ, that others might come to know you and avoid this place of eternal torment. I love you tonight, Lord, and I praise you. And I ask it all in the precious name of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen and a